G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. I hope you enjoy the ride. Chapter 14, Peru, Part 3, The Inca Trail. A few hours before leaving Cusco to walk the Inca Trail, I discovered I was bleeding internally. My stomach hadn't felt quite right for a few days, but this midnight toilet visit took things to a new level. I must have picked up dysentery or a worm or something somewhere in my travels. I woke before dawn and told the others in my trekking team I wouldn't be walking the trail with them. Then I went looking for a medical centre. After a long, anxious walk through Cusco's sunny downtown streets, I found the one suggested by Lonely Planet. The girl at the front desk was very helpful, but she spoke no English, and my infant Spanish wasn't up to the task of explaining my illness to her. Aware that most of the fifty sick local people in the waiting room were listening to me with concern, I gave up at the third try and took my place in the queue. After half an hour, I was seen by a very efficient doctor, who also spoke very little English. His ID badge stated he was a specialist in psychiatry. And fair enough, no offence taken. By then, though, while writing my diary to calm my nerves and pass the time, I'd worked it out. For the past couple of days, we'd eaten lunch and dinner at a terrific vegetarian restaurant called Govinda. Hating to see great food wasted, I'd eaten all my own food, as well as any leftovers. In 48 hours, I must have eaten a kilogram of beetroot. No internal bleeding after all. Fantastic. Arriving back at the hotel with a spring in my step, I found that Dave, the only other Australian in the now-departed trekking group, had cancelled his start on the trail that morning to make sure I was okay. What a legend. So Dave and I teamed up with a different group that was leaving the next morning. By coincidence, not design, our new group was mostly Australian. And after six years away from Sydney, it was great to share news of homegrown music and footy grand finals. Dave was from Sutherland on Sydney's south side. Then there was Paul from Sydney's north. Tony and Shonda were from Dubbo, a small town five hours drive northwest of Sydney and Patrick and Monica were from Germany. That night we completed our preparation for the four-day, high-altitude trekking camping adventure by talking and laughing until three in the morning. After way too little sleep, we raced to the station to fight the chaotic crowd for tickets on the three-hour train ride to where we'd start the trail. We were just catching up on a bit of shut-eye when the train screeched to a halt in the middle of nowhere. There was no sign of a station, just lots of trees and hills. We wondered if the train had broken down, but the locals were gesturing urgently and telling us to get off. Should we trust them? We'd read that the trail began somewhere along the railway line between Cusco and Machu Picchu. But we were expecting some sign to confirm that this was the place. In 1993, there was no platform, 
or buildings as there are now. It looked like just another Andean valley. We got up from our seats and stared outside. A few of the local passengers were doing the upwards flick of a down-facing palm that means over there in Peruvian. But over there seemed to be just another tree-covered hill. But further down the train, we saw a couple of gringos with serious-looking packs and an air of purpose climbing down from their carriage. So we took a leap of faith. At least, if this was the wrong place, we'd have company. The gringos headed off back down the tracks towards Cusco, and if it wasn't for them, we might never have found the wooden swing footbridge across the Urubamba River, and the simple sign on the other side that in those days was the only indicator of the start of the trail. As the train disappeared behind us, we found a random young local guy had jumped down from a carriage and was running to catch up with our group. He introduced himself as Alberto and asked if he could walk the trail with us. He had no camping equipment and just a couple of bananas. But he seemed like a nice enough bloke and he promised not to ask for a share of our food. So what the hay? Perhaps he needed to hide out from the police or his girlfriend's father for a few days. I reckon we walked about 15 kilometres that first day. It wasn't long before the other trekkers had skipped out of sight ahead of us, so we walked alone, mostly in silence. Soon we were recognising the flat, grey paving stones laid down by the Incas 500 years before. These made the trail easy to navigate in any weather or time of day, by llama or by foot. In occasional light rain, we went up and down mountains, crossed several small rivers on footbridges, and passed a couple of tiny villages. After a few kilometres, we came across Yaktapata, the first of the ruined Inca settlements for which the trail is famous. In 1993, only a few of Yaktapata's structures were visible across the valley from our high point on the path. Ten years later, the site was properly explored and cleared to reveal a vast network of terraces and dwellings along the hillside above the few structures we had seen. How much of the Inca civilization are we yet to discover? How little do we understand it? After lunch in the sun and a bit of a kip, we climbed steadily up to the Three White Stones landmark at 3,000 metres, where we camped alone in the thick alpine forest for the night. We woke up cold in the morning. The high clouds we'd walked beneath the previous day had descended to blanket us in thick, damp mist. After half-warming up with porridge and instant coffee cooked on our simple stoves, we set to packing the still damp tents. While we did so, two shy young boys, perhaps brothers, about eight or ten years old, materialised from the forest to ask for matches and a little rice, which we dug out and gave them. Soon we were donkey-plodding up the long, steep paved staircase cut into a valley wall that brings you to the highest point on the trail, Wami Wanuska Pass at 4,200 metres. Wami Wanuska means dead woman, but I failed to see the connection. Then came an equally steep descent to the Pacamayo River. After another long climb past hanging lakes, we had one of the world's most scenic picnic lunches in the sun at Rukurakai, before clearing a second high pass to find one of the world's most scenic campsites not far from Sayak Marka. 
We could have explored these Inca complexes for much longer if we hadn't been drawn on by the more famous ruins we knew lay ahead of us. I reckon we covered about 18 k's this day. And again, we walked in solitude and mostly silence. The weather was perfect. Occasional light rain turning to mist that ebbed and flowed with the cold breeze to obscure, then reveal, the views that changed kaleidoscopically from valley to valley. As the sunlight came and went, the colours changed from grayscale to startling extremes. An exhilarating day. Paul led the way as our quietly spoken mountaineer, complete with actual hiking poles. Dave, another experienced adventurer, came next. He'd walked in the Himalayas, among other exotic locales, and included the survival of a rhino attack on his trekking CV. He was the best equipped of us, even down to the bag of coca leaves he'd bought in the Cusco market. Then came Tony, a journalist, who offered occasional deadpan, hilarious observations that threatened to derail the steady pacing rhythm we tried to maintain. Patrick and Monica, and Shonda, Tony's girlfriend, were quiet and thoughtful, the perfect yin to Tony's yang. Then there was me, with my bargain bin camping equipment and a nomadic right kneecap that required strapping to prevent it going walkabout on the steep downhill stages. It had been just a few days since I'd arrived in Cusco, uncertain whether I was physically and technologically equipped to walk the three-day trail. It was only when I met Dave, whose experience and practicality I respected, that I decided to give it a crack. Dave reckoned the trail would be within my abilities, and without his encouragement, I'd have missed out on one of the best experiences of my travelling life. Cheers, mate. And then there was Alberto. To his credit, he never asked for a share of our food, though we all chipped in a little of what we ate at each meal. Dave and I took turns in sharing our cramped tents with him. When he shared my tent on the second night, he slept with an open flick knife beside his right hand. I never asked him what he was scared of, and I knew there were no dangerous animals that high in the mountains. It wasn't the best night's sleep I've had, as I wondered if Alberto intended to slit all our throats, or whether the danger he was ready to defend against would kill me too. The next day, with Alberto's knife blade still clean, it was about 12 k's of further mind-boggling adventure. We passed through a tunnel carved through rock by the Incas half a millennium before, then made a short climb to another high pass. Then came Fuyapatamaca, the most intricate, graceful and scenically blessed Inca structure so far. In the afternoon, we descended in sunshine down a perfectly paved, flower-lined staircase to a lush valley. Clinging to the edge of this valley was the extraordinary rows of steep, tall terracing and buildings of Wienawina. In the last light of day, while the clouds floated in to flood the valleys beneath us, we fast-walked round to make a rough campsite near the ruins at Itupinku, the Sun Gate. If the morning dawned clear, we'd watch the Machu Picchu ruins emerge from the darkness in the valley beneath us. Another great dinner was followed by more Tony-led hilarity beneath the stars. These days, you can't camp at the Sun Gate, and rightly so. In 1993, it wasn't compulsory, as it is now, to walk the trail with an official guide. So any self-guided trekking party could eat, sleep and go to the toilet pretty much wherever they chose. 
This was obviously no way to respect and preserve what is one of the modern wonders of the world. Thankfully, the freedom we had no longer exists. The next morning we were dressed, breakfasted and packed, half an hour before dawn. First light was grey, then pure white. The every morning thick, cold cloud enveloped and soaked us. Sitting outside, staring into the valley, waiting for the view, made us too stiff and sore, so we retreated back into our tents to stay out of the wind. Every few minutes we poked our heads out to see if the mist had cleared. Slowly the cloud tide ebbed thinner, then lower, as first light approached sunrise. The emerging view into the valley was awesome, but where was Machu Picchu? Had we taken a wrong turn? Were we watching from the wrong angle? All we could see from the sun gate were just a few stone outcrops scattered among towering peaks. But as the cloud tide receded further, Machu Picchu was revealed by degrees even more magnificent than we'd expected. How can a view you've seen a hundred times on biscuit tins still have such an impact when you're finally there? We skipped down the last section of the trail and left our packs at the entrance to the main complex. We were the only ones there, and we raced around exploring, knowing that in an hour or so the train from Cusco would arrive with several hundred day-trippers. Unhindered by the gravity of our packs, we mountain-goated up Wainapichu, the high, triangular peak that soars above the main complex. From here, the views were even more stupendous, with the precipitous Urubamba River Valley snaking round the site on three sides. Then we descended nearly vertically back down, with wobbly knees, to explore again the many buildings and terraces, all built with bafflingly precise stonemasonry. The tragedy and horror of the destruction of the Incas and their culture by the so-called Christian Spanish colonisers and the diseases they brought was deafeningly amplified in that silent, empty space. At about ten o'clock, the Cusco train pulled into the station at the base of the valley and our reverie was swamped by the excited calls and conversations of several hundred tourists swarming up the steep switchback path to discover the site. We retreated halfway down the hill, where a modern cafe sold us overpriced food and a celebratory beer. In the mid-afternoon, we hobbled the rest of the way down to the station in light rain for the five-hour train ride back to Cusco. All the seats had been sold to the day-trippers as return tickets, and nearly all the standing room in the aisles and doorways 
was filled with hundreds of locals from who knew where, making the journey to Cusco with huge rice sacks stuffed with who knew what. There was no room on the floor to sit, let alone lie, as we would have liked to do. So we stood the whole way. I was so exhausted I fell asleep standing up for a few minutes, the first and only time I've managed this feat. After a rest day back in Cusco, we went out and discovered the kamikaze disco. I'm not really a disco kind of bloke. I'd rather a live band any day. But the kamikaze went off. Sure, you could blame the party atmosphere on the cheap drinks, especially the Pisco Sours. And at three and a half thousand metres, you were pretty high already. But it was more than that. Cusco was the first major backpack across roads I'd passed through in seven months of travelling, and every traveller had come a long way from wherever they started to explore something real and rare. No one was wasting time or taking anything for granted. In the kamikaze that night, I re-met, by chance, South African Tessa, who I'd last seen in Colombia six weeks before. She and her friend Sonara, from Sydney, had walked the Inca Trail together just a few days before us. We met for breakfast the next morning and planned to meet a few days later in La Paz, Bolivia, to share the next leg of our journey south. That night, our seven-strong Inca Trail party took the brutal 11-hour bumpy night bus back to Juliaca. Sleep was impossible unless you'd taken a Valium, as Tony and Shonda had, so the rest of us arrived exhausted. Nonetheless, we jumped directly onto another bus that took us to Puno, on the shore of Lake Titicaca. The next two-hour bus ride to Yunguyo and the Bolivian border featured spectacular views of the deep blue lake and its patchwork terraced islands radiating in brilliant sunshine. But before we get to Bolivia, let me take you back to Cusco for the tale of two ankles. Here I'm going to dance around a bit to conceal identities. At dinner on my first night in Cusco, I found myself seated at the same table as Miss A and Mr B. They had been travelling through South America for a few months too, so we had lots of notes to compare. Halfway through one of my descriptions, I mentioned I'd spent some time along the way with someone I'll call Mr C. I've left him out of previous stories to allow me to tell this one. At the mention of Mr C's name, Miss A and Mr B jumped as if electrocuted. Mr C did this, said Miss A, and she removed the hiking boot then the sock from her left foot, and pulled up the leg of her jeans to reveal a horrific scar that ran the length of her ankle. And this was the story she told. There'd been an open day at the local surf club. To attract new members, the clubbies were offering joy rides through the head-high surf in a motorised inflatable dinghy. Miss A and Mr B found themselves sharing a ride with Mr C, who they hadn't met before. Mr C was mates with the clubby guy piloting the boat and persuaded his friend to let him have a go at driving. Having no idea how to drive it, but grabbing the chance for a laugh with both hands, Mr C launched the dinghy up and over a cresting wave way too fast. The dinghy flew skywards and its crew were flung clear, except for Miss A. She had been at the front of the boat, holding onto a rope attached to the bow, and in her fear she hadn't let go when the boat took off. So as the dinghy fell back to the water, 
Miss A was slung-shot headfirst towards it. She was lucky not to break her neck, but her left ankle smashed against the wooden bench in the dinghy and shattered. In agony, she floated beyond the waves until another boat could be launched to rescue her. In hospital, it took the surgeons a week to figure out the best way to put the bones back together. Eighteen months later in Cusco, her ankle was still only at about 70% strength. Miss A and Mr B hadn't seen Mr C since. A chill had fallen over our table. Their anger at Mr C had been dug up, and I felt like I'd seen a ghost. For this was the story I had for Miss A and Mr B. In the days I'd travelled with Mr C, he'd told me the story of Miss A's shattered ankle in great detail. But in Mr C's version, there was one crucial difference. It hadn't been his fault. He blamed Miss A for not letting go of the rope at the front of the boat. But that was just the start of what Miss A and Mr B didn't know. A few months after the surf club disaster, Mr C had been building a career as a semi-professional skier by making a film. He set up a shot where he'd launch himself across a ski field access road from a six-metre cliff on an off-piste slope. Yes, you can see where this is going. He didn't make the jump. While he dodged death by getting most of his body onto the relatively soft slope beyond the road, one of his ankles shattered against the road's hard shoulder. He'd spent a week in hospital while surgeons figured out how to put the bones back together. When I'd travelled with him, his ankle was still at only about 70% strength. I watched and waited for Miss A and Mr B to react. You're kidding, said Miss A. Which ankle? I know it's hard to make coincidences interesting on paper, but this was a doozy. All the way down to the left ankle. And on that note of wonder, let's cross the border into Bolivia. If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at the We're Only Here Once Instagram page. Search for James W underscore Woho, or there's a link in the show notes. The texts of the stories are at jameswiley.com. The music you've been listening to is written by me and played by me and my band, The Nomads. Big love and thanks to my family and friends, without whom this wouldn't exist. And if you want to make a podcast, look up Rod Mori at Sydney Podcast Studios. Thanks for dropping in. See ya.